What is going on? Happy Halloween. Happy Monday. Welcome to a spooky edition of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Oh, Canucks Talk is always spooky, <laughs> my friend. Always a little gloomy here oh. on Canucks Talk. <laughs> This is the grimmest. Yeah, this is the grimmest show on the 650 air. Well, extra spooky today for Halloween. Uh, I'm Jamie Dodd. That voice is Canucks Insider. Thomas I'm Ichabod Crane. Yes, my co-host who also comes and, to the team at I'm, the Athletic. I'm Ichabod Crane, and I'm listening. Right, Fraser. Oh, yeah, radio. That's very good. Crane. Yeah, there you go. Very good. Very good. Took me a second. Yeah, but, yeah. Fraser's uh, Fraser's fantastic. third brother, Ichabod. Yes. Uh, anyways, <laughs> Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. We are, as always, coming to you live from the Kintech studio at Rogers Arena. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. Hit us up, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. A busy day here at Rogers Arena, Drancer. We had the Canucks practice earlier today. Their opponent tomorrow, the New Jersey Devils, on the ice. Well into their practice right now here at Rogers Arena. And, of course, a lot of special teams work. A lot of six on five. Uh, Devils preparing for some close games, presumably including tomorrow against the Vancouver Canucks. This Devils team is really impressive. Really impressive. Uh, they're taking it two teams right now. They are uh, blown out. I mean, they got the close win against the Colorado Avalanche. That was, there was a... nothing close about that game. They the smothered them. But, yes, they've... Uh, the star was, you're right. There was, <laughs> there the, was one thing the, that was the, close. The main thing that mattered was close. But, I mean, remember when Canada <laughs> beat the United States one nothing, and it was like the most lopsided yeah, one nothing yeah, game yeah. anyone had ever seen? Same thing. Absolutely smothered the Colorado Avalanche. That's impressive. It's extremely impressive. They've been, <laughs> they've been one of the, uh, the pleasant surprises, the most impressive teams in the NHL in the early going so now, far. Now, their, their record, however, is basically identical to what they've managed in the first ten games the last two years. So this Devils team has started hot multiple seasons in a row, and then their goaltenders have stopped passing the Mackenzie Blackwood make a single save challenge, and once that happens, their season is gone in the tank. They added Vanacek to, to help sort of solidify things. He's been good for them. Blackwood's been fine for them, passable. Ultimately, this team just needs some saves. Mm -hmm. Like, if this team gets saves, they're a real threat in the East. Uh, we all know I've been picking them as my dark horse multiple years in a row. <laughs> At some point, I'll be right. At some point, it's going to pay off. Look, <laughs> the rest of the team, and they made some additions in the offseason, and you know some players who are kind of growing into being star players as well, obviously, with Jack Hughes, chief among them. The rest of the team looked really, really impressive. We'll talk more about the Devils tomorrow on game day before they face off against the Canucks, but it's it's going to be a really – you know, if you just looked at the schedule before the year and you kind of said, oh, like home game against the Devils, all right, that that's a, a good chance for a win. This is a very impressive team, and it's going to be a tough test yeah. for the Canucks. This isn't that night. Buffalo class of, like, team that's scarier than they look on paper before you see them start to play. Uh, a lot of speed here, tough matchup. And look, you know, all of that said, the Canucks have now beat two fast opponents back to back. The Pittsburgh Penguins don't didn't look fast. They did at not. All. The Pittsburgh Penguins no. looked out of sorts, and they did. Look, hey, Canucks have won two in a row now. I thought that was their best performance of the year against Pittsburgh on Friday night. And full credit to the Canucks. You can only play who's in front of you. Who who knows how much of it was Pittsburgh being out of sorts? How much of that was thanks to what the Canucks were doing? But yeah, they dominated that game. I thought. I agree with you. So I was asking because I was asking around and talking to some players um, over the weekend, and was saying to them, you know, I thought the 12 minutes they played in Seattle 
were some of their most impressive was some of their most impressive hockey of the year. And, you know, then they followed up with an even better game mm. uh, against the Penguins. And one thing that was mentioned to me was closing that game out in Seattle was really tough, in part because you're trying to play this really simple bleed-the-clock team defensive game, and yet you all want it so badly that it's kind of hard to play within yourself. You're almost working too hard to just get the win. Um, and that and that against Pittsburgh in the third period, where it was a far calmer approach to the same game, and they played it effectively, even though the Pittsburgh Penguins began to come with speed more often and began to dictate play, they were kept to the outside effectively. Yeah. And one thing that was mentioned to me was having had just the one win, just that, like, break in the seal, the the confidence that, like, okay, we can do it. We're not going to go 0-82. <laughs> just having that mentally provided for a calmer environment for the Canucks as they bled the clock in that third period and that second period, frankly, and closed out the game against the Penguins. Well, and in that game, you know, so first of all, per natural stat trick, Penguins only credited with four high danger chances all game at 5 5 right? As you said, you, you look at the shot attempts, and yeah, Pittsburgh had more of the puck. We're getting generally more pucks towards the net, but from the actual dangerous scoring areas, it was very difficult for them to get there. And then, you know, in that third period, because it's 2-1 going into that third period, right? And Pittsburgh comes out, and I think it was for the first two and a half minutes. I think there was a stoppage of play with about 17.30 left on the clock. I was at the game, and I remember looking up and thinking, oh, boy, like this is going to be a real, real tight one. I like Pittsburgh's chances to come back and tie this because it was a solid two and a half minutes of pressure to open the period. And how often have we seen – just this season, that snowball against the Canucks, and it turns into a full period of pressure and giving up two or three goals and losing the game that you had a lead in the third period in. Well, From that whistle, yeah. they turned the tide. Yeah, they and they did. stopped it. And they said, no, we're not letting that. We're not letting it turn into this. We're going to play our game. We're going to get back on the puck a little bit. We're going to generate some chances. And ultimately, it leads to them scoring some goals and patting the lead as well. Well, and that was one thing the Bruce There It Is Canucks did really well. They, they pounced on opportunities. And another example, I thought, was at the end of the first period where JT Miller could have easily been whistled for interference on Evgeny Malkin. Instead, um, gets away with it, which, by the way, I'm not saying – like, that's just the luck of the bounces, right? Like, yep. sometimes you get away with it, sometimes you don't. JT Miller's smart enough to pick his spots to, to execute in the right moment that he doesn't get it. And then and then Malkin comes back and hooks him, partly out of frustration. So Miller, in fact, deserves credit for drawing the penalty, mm. <laughs> having not been whistled himself. But that's just a bounce, right? That Like, that could go either way. Some games, some nights, it's not your night, and you get the penalty, and you put the Penguins' power play to work uh, across the end of the first period and the start of the second. Went the other way. Canucks get that power play opportunity. Bo Horvat gets the goal, right? And all of a sudden, you're cooking. You've got the lead. You've, you know, set yourself up to close the game out the way that they did over the, over the latter 40 minutes. Uh, you know, again, the Penguins didn't really start to attack until the last 20, and that team looked slow. That team looked way slower than some of the previous iterations we've seen now. Getting guys like Gensel back will help, mm -hmm. but the Penguins could be in a world of hurt considering how difficult that division is, especially if this Devils team is as legit as they've looked for the first 10 games, right? I mean, that's going to be a hard team to keep out of the playoffs for some of those teams in the Metropolitan that have sort of been a little bit up and down to begin the year. And, you know, I lumped the Rangers into that after their impressive start. They've sort of looked like the Rangers again. Yeah. Um, the Pittsburgh Penguins look... Very much out of sorts and lost again to Seattle the next night, granted, back-to-back. -back, but 
They were really bad at Seattle. Well, that was after they lost both of them in Alberta too, right? Right. So that's a that's that, a they're really reeling. tough. They're reeling now. West Coast or Western North America stretch for them. Well, and that's a new ownership group that just spent a lot of money on some aging players, you know, in sort of defiance of the strategy that they've tended to use in Boston and in Liverpool, right? So you wonder you wonder about that situation and how that could turn pretty quick here. Yeah, Washington, another of those teams that it's going to be curious to see, like the established traditional playoff teams in that metropolitan division and now with you know philly i expect to fall back to the pack as i think most oh, people 100 percent. uh but the devils i think are legit again depending on what the gold kind of gold the devils are legit the hurricanes are legit yep. and then and the new york islanders look like they're you know uh, evolving into something new that actually could be pretty interesting i loved that three nothing comeback that they had against colorado the other day and Colorado's looking a little vulnerable here. Mm-hmm. They've uh, they've had a slow start, but cup hangover, I think we give them the benefit of the doubt. Oh, yeah. Uh, should, the other anyway. thing, two of the other things that uh, well went in the Canucks' favor in that game, and it was the second game in a row for both of these, is they won the special teams battle. Yep. And they won the goaltending battle. Not, I'm not sitting here saying, oh, Tristan Jari was really bad for Pittsburgh no, or he anything wasn't. like that. He wasn't. But Spencer Martin, um, but Spencer was, Martin really good. was very good. Yep. And they scored two power play goals. Second game in a row with two power play goals. And how often have you and I said it? Like, eventually the power play is going to start cashing in here. That's going to do a lot to get the Canucks in the win column. And there you go. You know, two power play goals in back-to-back games. you got to win in back-to-back games for the Canucks as well. I had a really good chat with Spencer Martin just about the gap that he worked through between NHL games, right? This was a guy who played his last NHL game in 16-17 and then was just waiting for his opportunity. Comes to Vancouver and is the fifth guy on the depth chart. Very much so. Even to open the season, right? It's not like he won the job at camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, Di Pietro was phenomenal. At his, uh, you know, second to last Canucks training camp, his last is a real member of the of the team or in the organization's plans going forward. And Martin sort of had to earn everything and and rebuilt his game. Right, I think he saw Demko's work ethic. He saw the way that Clark worked with his goaltenders and and what they were building into the game. How technical it was. He was a willing student. Worked closely with Curtis Sanford. Of course, departed to Toronto now, and they ended up sort of finding this guy who's now stepped in and isn't an out-of-nowhere guy. This isn't a journeyman, or he is a journeyman, but he's a pedigree guy. He was a really highly touted junior Mm. goal. He was on the national team radar, you know, as a teenager. I mean, this was not a complete out-of-nowhere guy. It was just a guy who got some opportunities in Colorado, and then it took him some time to find his footing again in the NHL. And he was talking to me. I thought it was pretty funny. He makes his first start. I don't know if you remember this, but his first start was um, against Florida. Okay. Club had like a COVID crunch, and it's Florida, and it's Spencer Martin oh, playing. Yeah. Yep. And he plays phenomenally, and the Canucks lose in uh, in overtime, right? And then their next game, I, can't, I think it's Edmonton. I believe it was Edmonton. Edmonton. I remember him playing against Edmonton. Yeah. And he plays phenomenally, and they lose in overtime, right? And so now he's like, I'm a guy who's made six starts in the league, and I've never won. <laughs> and he was talking about how much that meant to him. The thing I really liked about my conversation with Martin, what really impressed me was his understanding of, and I thought it was a really mature understanding, that like the performance of your backup plays such a big role in determining a team's playoff fate, especially in a world where goalies are typically capped around 62, Mm. right? You're at least playing your backup 20 games. Well, the difference between going 500, like in terms of point percentage, and 550, right, you know, it, it's three points, right? Like that alone can determine whether or not you're in the playoffs or out, particularly if you're a team like the Canucks who profile 
like one of those playoff bubble teams. And he has a really under, like he he looked at this team last year and he you know he he described what he wants to accomplish. Like what's your main personal goal this year? You know, obviously like be an NHL player, figure out how to be a everyday backup, right? Make sure that I'm doing a good job warming up our shooters every day because that's one of your primary mm-hmm. responsibilities. But like number 1 for him was to take some of the gaps that occurred when Demko wasn't playing last year and 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 patch them over. That's number one for him. I, I thought that was really impressive. And all of that said, I have zero time for the, for the commentary in my mentions. There is no goalie controversy no, 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 in no. this city. No, 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 no. Stop no. it. We love our backups in Vancouver. Yes, love them. It's true. For as for as difficult as it is to be a starter in, in Vancouver, it's a great place to be a backup oh. goalie. <laughs> Amazing, but the, you know it's interesting. There's people still lobbying for like Peter Scudra to play more. It's crazy. It's wild. Man. His commentary about you know how important the backup can be to a team making the playoffs. That's not even factoring in just the fact that if the backup plays and gives the coach confidence and, and gains the coach's trust, it reduces the load on the starter and prevents them from wearing down, prevents them from getting fatigued. Right, and at the very least, you know he's only played two games, but. Spencer Martin has, for now, earned that trust where you don't have to have a moment's hesitation playing him in spots where it makes sense. And you can even start, I think, at this point, and we'll see, you know, if and when. I I certainly expect it to happen, but when exactly Thatcher Demko really gets on a heater. But right now, you look at the schedule coming up for the Canucks. Okay, when they go out on the road uh, a little bit later next week, they've got a pair of back-to-backs, right? In Ottawa and Montreal and then Toronto and Boston. Both of those are back-to-backs. So that's two obvious spots for Spencer Martin. <laughs> and at play. least one really good team. Yeah. And maybe are... two. Potentially. I mean, do you give him the Ottawa game? Like, if you're going to play Demko solid this week... Well, that's the question, though. Do you play Demko all three games this week? I don't think so. I wouldn't. I, don't, I, I honestly think you should build your system to give the goalie a, a, week, a day off a week. If you have... If you have a backup who's playing really well and you have faith and confidence in them, why wouldn't you get him to start this week? Yeah. There's no reason not to, right? Like, And maybe, you know, there's something to, to be said for, okay, well, Demko, you know, he needs to get into the games to find his rhythm again. But get him that rest. Get him that reset time, that time to work on things in practice. I don't think there's any reason whatsoever not to play Spencer Martin in one of the games this week. You know, I would be looking potentially – uh, the one on Thursday against Anaheim, right? And then you get or Saturday you against get, Nashville. Cause, yeah, because to some extent too, this Devils assignment is going to be a tough one. Yep. You know, the Anaheim Ducks were until they beat the Maple Leafs yesterday, one of the worst teams in the league. Yep. Like you, you, you don't want to take the cupcake starts away from a goalie who's not been uh, to their form yet, right? So I, I guess it's a little tricky. I, I'd sort of wait to see if Demko plays lights out. Against New Jersey, I I would consider sure I would consider Martin. But if he doesn't, if he doesn't shut down a, a really good opponent who's for sure going to outshoot the Canucks by a wide margin. I mean, just that's what we know. We that's, don't know that the Devils will win, but we know that they're they, going to control the game. They've done that to what, everybody, every team so oh, far yeah, this year, including like Colorado, including <laughs> really good teams. They're a destroyer of worlds at the moment, five on five, right? So um, it's going to be a heavy workload night, and I think you know. I, I, this is one where looking to give Spencer Martin a start this week, but not necessarily being set on which one makes sense to me. Uh, but we'll see. And then and then I do think he probably gets Montreal, right? I think you probably give yes. Martin Montreal, uh, especially with how Otto is playing at and the moment. And then you give him Boston as well because you you're going to give Demko the spotlight. I think you're going to give Demko the spotlight game against the Leafs, Hockey Night in Canada, in Toronto, right? I don't know. 
I mean, Demko went to school in Boston, right? He's got some roots uh, there. Okay. It might, that right. might be the one he wants. All right, all right. That's whereas, Martin, whereas Martin's a Toronto That's guy. Fair. That's Whereas fair. Martin's a Toronto yeah. guy. You know, it might be like play each guy in the place that matters more to them. Although if you're if you're looking to uh, to give Demko cupcake opponents, I mean, get him, get him <laughs> into that Toronto game right now, am I right? Yeah, and they're, 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 that's a team firing blanks. Yes. Well, which is the interesting part, right? Like that team's losing because they can't score. And I think that's, you know, I always look at teams – are they struggling because of things we know to be untrue or are they struggling because of things that we know to be problems or expect mm. to be problems, right? And I'm always much more concerned about the first thing, right? Like one of the reasons that the Canucks are only 2-6 or 2-5-2 and two at the moment is, you know, in my view anyway, the contributions to the attack from the back end, right? That, that That's left them a little bit soft in terms of their 5-on-5 five five form. They're not getting as much out of their top pair, with Hughes out, as, as we've seen previously. Hopefully the the time out of the lineup will, will bring a Quinn Hughes back into the lineup who looks more like what we've seen the last three years of his career as opposed to the player who looked like he was fighting it a little bit, maybe a little bit tired, uh, that we saw earlier this season. But, you know, for me, that's like a more, that's a more intractable issue. That's like, oh, that's sort of what I was worried about, and we've sort of seen it yeah. come to life. With Toronto, it's like, they're losing, but Austin Matthews has three goals. <laughs> you know, like that's at some point he's going to have you know seven goals every eight games for two months, and what do they look like then? That that to me is is less of a concern. But I don't think the Leafs are likely to be the contender that they've been in past seasons uh, without you know a material change to the speed of their blue line. To be totally honest with you, like that's a back end too that I think needs a little bit more push, a little bit more push. So anyways, you get him a start this week, and then the two in those first four games on the road trip, that's three out of the next seven all of a sudden that you're potentially giving to Spencer Martin. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's exactly where you want to be with your backup. That's what you should be hoping for going into the season. Especially if he keeps playing well. Yeah. Right? Like, especially if he keeps playing well. You know, I've talked about this a lot, but, I mean, I I honestly think we're – we've sort of set – it used to be like 70 games. Right, your backup would play ten, and you'd expect seventy-two of your starter, and then mm. we realized that was way too much, and that goalies were wearing down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, and now it's sixty, and I still think that's too high, and I still think that's too high by like maybe fifteen games. Like to be honest with you, I still think we're way away from figuring out exactly what optimal goalie usage is because these guys work hard in practice too. Demko, in particular, is on the ice every day. It's not just the game load. Right, the, the game load matters obviously because that's such strenuous activity. But Demko's working every day. He's skating every day. Like he, he skates after a back to you know on, in the morning after a, after a game uh, when when the team's playing that night. Uh, so you know I, I honestly think we probably need to limit it further. And I'll just cite one last time my favorite stat, which is eighteen goalies played fifty games or more, and all but three either wore down late in the year, wore down in the playoffs, or got hurt late. Like. All but three. Yep. That's all you need to know for me. A couple of other things I just wanted to mention from the Pittsburgh game. We'll talk a little bit about what happened at practice. Also, uh, some interesting comments from Jim Rutherford to your athletic colleague, Pierre Lebrun, mm-hmm. that we'll get to at some point in the show. Gemma Carson-Smith will join us later as well. But just from that Pittsburgh game, Bo Horvat, two goals, both on the power play, although the one off the rush that was just an absolute picture-perfect, incredible snipe. Uh, you know, it doesn't really set up like a standard power play goal. But two more goals for Bo Horvat. And at 5-on-5, I thought that was the best game we've seen from JT Miller and the best game we've seen from a line at 5-on-5 anchored by Bo Horvat as well. Absolutely. that's – 
you know, I mean, they need it. You think think back to when JT Miller was acquired, and what did everyone say? Oh, there's there's your winger for Bo Horvat. There's right. the guy who's going to help him. And now it took a little while, but all of a sudden you put two really good hockey players together, and looks like they've got a little something going there. Bo Horvat's goal scoring looks dialed in. Oh, yeah. So I talked to him a little bit today. Um, recorder away. You're not going to read any quotes about this in The Athletic, but, you know, there's I've, – I've been noticing in practice a lot Bo Horvat shoots with so much deceptiveness now, right? And it's not as hard a shot necessarily. There's not as big a windup. It's maybe not as flashy, but he skates and he shoots off the rush, and I see no way that you could ever read that he's even shooting, right? Like it's quick release – all low hand power, and you know he's changed the whippiness of his stick. He's gone even lower than he has in the past, right? So he's made some material changes, and and this is a guy who's added some heft to his goal scoring ability, right? He he probably was on pace to be a well, he wasn't on pace, but I think there was a real chance with how the Canucks power play was cooking mm. that if he doesn't get hit by that stray puck in the back of his leg, he was going off for forty last season. He started this season scorching hot in the goal scoring department, like outrageously hot in the goal scoring department. He's gone to a lower whip on his stick, um, and and he's added a fair bit of deceptiveness to his overall release. This is a guy basically who's found like a new level, and it's not because he's added four clicks to his fastball; it's because he's added a changeup, mm. right? Like or, or like he's deepened his curve. Like he's harder to stop but it's not loud the way he's going about it. He's become like a thinking man's goal scorer in, in a certain way. And it's fun to watch. Like, it's been a lot of fun to watch. Um, yeah, I'm, one thing I'm enjoying is uh, the finishing game of Contract Year Bohorvat. It's, uh, <laughs> it's been enjoyable. Yes, and, uh, you know, you talk about the deception. And, you know, okay, how can you even tell if he's going to pass or not? Tristan Jari sure didn't know on that goal. No. <laughs> he had no idea where that puck was going until Bo Horvat, until it was behind him already. But I'm telling you, I've seen that every rush, like, he's working on it in practice, and he's impossible to read as a shooter now. Like, impossible. And that wasn't, like, Bo Horvat always had the toe drag move. You know, we'd see it all the time, <laughs> and it was like his bread and butter move was the toe drag move. And, you know, he wasn't necessarily a plus finisher. He was a good finisher. But he's become so dangerous with such good touch in tight. It's really an interesting evolution that sort of, I think, has solidified in his late 20s, right? This is one of those sort of things you occasionally see in pro sports where outside of an aging curve, a guy can add, you know, something to their game just by sheer work and brain power. And and I think that's Horvat's finishing game. I Whoa. literally think he spent a lot of time thinking about it, working on it, and it's and it's paying dividends. It's the classic thing you always hear and look I'm not comparing these players obviously, but you always hear the stories about Michael Jordan, right? Like every off season he went got in the gym and added something to his game. And it was the three-pointer. Then it was the fadeaway. Whatever it was, right? It was, okay, I'm going to work. I'm going to purely based on technique. I'm going to figure out how to add something else to my game. It's a lot easier said than done. But if you can do that, that's a really good way to kind of defy the aging curve and keep getting better even as you get into that part of your career. And just, you know, Horvat, look, he's shooting 22% right now. That's not going to continue, obviously. But no. having said that... He's always been an above-average finisher. Like, last year he shot 16%. The year before that, 14.5%. He's a career 13, uh, about 13.5% shooter. That's really, really good. And there's a reason why he's always been able to sustain slightly higher numbers, especially now with his usage on the power play. Like, you're in the middle on that power play. You're going to get a lot of goals. You're going to get a lot of shots going in. Well, and it used to be because he was good off the rush, 
and because he played beneath the hash marks, yeah. right? So lower distance on his shots and more rush chances because of the the bull rush thing that he used to do. He still does, but you know, it used to be all he all he had in his offensive arsenal, and it's a good thing to have in your uh, beat guys down and be bigger than them, mm-hmm. so they can't and get take, to the net, yeah. so they can't take the puck off you and get to the net. That's a good that's a good uh, trick if you're gonna if you're gonna you know need one. But uh, but now I do think there's a, a more diverse way that he's able to beat goaltenders. He's able to do it with deception, and you're right, being in the bumper on that power play, having Pedersen and uh, Miller and Hughes <laughs> around him uh, as he lives in that diamond. I mean, it is uh, he's you know I keep telling this to people, but like he really has become one of the top guys in the league in that spot. Yeah, and I mean hits thirty for the first time last year, as you said, was going to take a run at thirty five forty, uh, depending on health. Already at six through nine games, and I you know look, there's a lot of long way to go. Health. Whether he's here or not for the whole season, whatever the case may be, with Bo Horvat, but it looks like he's poised to challenge and set another career high uh, in goals based on his performance so far this year. Six fifty, six fifty is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Hit us up. Get your thoughts in. Uh, the Canucks are done practicing. Uh, still, lots happening at Rogers Arena, though, and we will talk more about uh, what they did at practice today, and also some comments, some very interesting comments from Jim Rutherford. That's coming up next. It is Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Still at Rogers Arena where they are literally rolling out the red carpet. Of course, big big press conference later on today. Major news conference. Major news conference. We'll uh, we'll see. Might might hear some more <laughs> about that on the station at some point, but we'll wait to see what the Canucks have to say at 2:30 at that major news <laughs> conference. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> Introducing their, <laughs> I was gonna say amazing. like their Halloween warm-up jerseys. But, yeah, that'd be yeah. so cool. What tomorrow's the? Uh, is tomorrow the Rat reverse retro? The teams? Yes, the yes. team's been wearing it in practice. So uh, maybe they're just showing those off. I person. love some of the gear that uh, the hats that the coaches are wearing at the moment are sick. With the navy, they're like pinwheel navy and uh, green hats mm-hmm. with the Johnny Canuck logo on them. I love them. I like it. Legitimately, legitimately, the coolest piece of team gear I've seen anyone on the Canucks wear in a long, long time. I'm excited to see what they look on the ice tomorrow. That's always you can you can look at them in the promo photos and you you develop your opinion, but then there's always a fresh opinion, a vibe, a fresh vibe when they're actually on the ice. So. Yeah, I mean I think Navy is a good look for this team. And they've done Navy reverse retros now back to back years, right? The Sprite. Well I guess not back to back years, but the Sprite and then yeah. this. Um Yeah, that was last year, wasn't it? No, or it was that 2021. Okay. okay. Yeah. So I'm I'm wondering like I'm wondering are we ever going to get like a navy and green flying skate? Mm. That's the moment I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for them to interfere with the flying skate color scheme but like bring it into a blue and uh blue and navy world. Or sorry, a green and navy world. I think that's coming. It's got to come. That seems like an obvious candidate, right? If the NHL keeps on with the uh the performances or the the promotion like this, I think that certainly is one that we're going to see at some point. Uh, before we move on to talk about the Jim Rutherford comments a little bit, just some quick updates from practice. Quinn Hughes, full participant in practice, which second means in a row, he looks to be good to go uh, to play against his brother Jack Hughes and the New Jersey Devils tomorrow night when they uh, when they face off here at Rogers Arena. I mean, 
look, they won two games in a row. They played really well against Pittsburgh, but it's impossible to watch this team. Even when Quinn Hughes was in the lineup, and then since he's been out of the lineup as well, and not think, man, do they desperately need, desperately need a healthy Quinn Hughes right now. So we'll see what level of performance he's at tomorrow and going forward. But, you know, it didn't feel like we were getting the real Quinn Hughes to begin the year. We've heard him talk a little bit about, yeah, you know, there was some pain going on. So hopefully he's he's healthy, he's 100%, he's ready to hit the ground running because, again, he is exactly what this team needs on the back end. And setting up uh, the pairs on the blue line now, OEL and Meyer still together, Hughes and Shen, Riley Stillman and Ethan Bear, the new acquisition skating on a pair together, and then Jack Rathbone and Burroughs. So just looking at it there, I would expect Rathbone and Burroughs to be the guys drawing out of the lineup, Stillman and Bear to be coming in, and then you've got the top four that you're pretty accustomed to seeing at this point. Uh, on the forward front, Besser was skating as an extra on the fourth line. Bruce Boudreaux says that he's day-to-day, so he's going to be a game-time decision tomorrow against the Devils. Didn't look like they were preparing for him to play today, but you never know, as you said, as uh, Boudreaux said, game-time decision. And then uh, the other new acquisition, Jack Stanika, playing in between Tanner Pearson and Niels Hoaglander. So it seems like we could see not only Quinn Hughes return to the lineup, but a couple of uh, Canuck debuts tomorrow as well, Drancer. Yeah, and I mean... Big shot for Studnika getting a third-line center look, right? I mean, the Canucks yeah. need a right-handed centerman. They need a guy who can win draws. Um, you know, that's not the, – the winning draws part isn't his forte, but playing a direct game with, you know, some offensive flair, at least in the American League level in, in his junior days, that was Studnika's game. That's a line that could win a lot of battles and be pretty hard to play against. So I like the vision there, right? I think it's fair to say – that one of this team's biggest issues is that they haven't had that like defensive conscience third line center mm. in a long, long time, right? Uh, it was always sort of the issue too with going Pedersen, Miller, Horvat down the middle, is that they're all lefties who are best suited to being used in standard offensive deployment, right? That their most impressive attributes are offensive attributes, not shutdown attributes, not two way driving attributes, at least in my view. So. Um, you know, not penalty killing. Certainly, that's that part's not dis- uh, in dispute. Stunika's got a shot, got a shot to sort of make an impression, filling in that gap, right? Filling in that gap. That's where they're starting him. It might be too big a lift for him, but you know, it, that's what that's what you paid for. That's what you paid to to have a look at. And I think it was well worth the gamble because there is still upside there, if he can really you know make that spot his home. Uh, and if he can't. You'll, you'll go back to the drawing board, yeah. and all it cost you was Jonathan Myrenberg. Well, so, whatever. And even in the short term, you know, okay, he sets up as the third-line center based on how they're taking rushes and the jersey color and everything at practice, playing with Tanner Pearson and Niels Hoaglander. But you look at what the fourth line was, and it's Niels Amon, Vasily Podkoles, and Dakota Joshua. And we know Niels Amon has earned a lot of trust and confidence from the coach right away. So, yeah, even if there's you, just not enough with the puck oh, for him sure, to be a top-nine guy. But just strictly from a short-term perspective, it's not as if you're like, oh, man, we need Jack Stunica to play 18 minutes a night because we don't have any faith in what we have in that on that fourth line, right? Like, you can ease him in in a relatively sheltered role sure. because you have that do have that degree of at least defensive confidence you're right. in Neil Zamont. Where, I mean? where maybe the third and the fourth line play almost equitable. Exactly. Like, those are easily – those look very interchangeable time. to For me, sure. right? If you're, if you're kind of worried about, you know, throwing him in the deep end, you don't yeah. really have to do that right. in this configuration. But I do like that they're throwing him into the deep end in terms of usage, right? Like, in terms of – or not in terms of usage, but in terms of opportunity, right? Pearson and Hoaglander – 
with Studnika, if he can take the ball and run with it, that works. That makes sense in your mind's eye is like the third line that this yep. team really hasn't had much of. Uh, Besser, by the way, was sort of an extra on that fourth line, switching in on both wings. Uh, you know, as you noted, I wouldn't expect him back for Monday, but hopefully this week. Um, and that's going to be an interesting one is is where they find a spot for him, considering that the top six now has started to cook, at least cooked for one night. Right. I mean, I don't want to overstate the team wins two games and everyone's like, well, the crisis has we're passed. on fire now. <laughs> Look how great this team looks. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, you know, I, I'm not sure that the Mikhaev, um Kuzmenko Patterson line is, is going to be the answer long term. I'm definitely not convinced that Miller Horvat Garland is, is better long term than Miller Horvat Besser would be or that if you put Besser in, in Mikhaev's spot, it wouldn't work. So. We'll see how this evolves uh, once once everyone's healthy and in the lineup and, and ramped up. Um, but, yeah, and then on the back end, you know, Bear and Stillman, which which looks like it would take Kyle Burrows out of the lineup. Yep. I mean, your mileage may vary, but I don't know how you justify taking Kyle Burrows out of the lineup. For me, he's been one of their best. You know, certainly one of their best defensive Defenseman certainly the most reliable moving the puck with in, in Quinn Hughes's absence in my view like not close so you know it that's a tough break for a guy who's done absolutely everything you've asked for and who I don't think you know I mean look that's the life for an NHL depth player but I do think Kyle Burrows at the level where you know I, I have zero reservations suggesting that he based on what this team has should be an everyday player on this defense court well he's also a guy who can play on the left side which stands out to me because right. I understand you're not going to take Myers out. I understand, you know, a lot of people want to see Bear with Quinn Hughes. I've, I'm sure we'll see that at some point, but I also understand his Bear, first game, Quinn Hughes really, coming back. He's not really like the, the he's not really the calm. No, look after Hughes presence that you ideally want. Not that not that you need to look after Hughes, but I know. still think they got to try it at some point. But I also understand why it's not. Oh, you're here now. Here you go. Here's you're you're going to play 25 minutes a night alongside Quinn Hughes. I understand keeping Shen there for now. But I think you could easily go Burroughs Bear on the on the third yeah. there to start. Right? Like that certainly would be an option for sure. Although you also got to get a look at Stillman. You gave up a fair bit to get him. Right? And yeah. and he's a good player. I think my concern is that uh, that Stillman Myers and Bear all sort of profile a little bit similarly in that their reputations might be more as, like, defensive guys, but really they're offensive guys with some defensive gaps. Well, Bear, I would say, they're all has reputation player. as an offensive guy, for sure. sure. I wouldn't say Bear has that defensive mm, reputation. Yeah, but, you know, he's got the rep as a two-way guy. Okay. I think. Anyway, I mean, maybe, maybe that's dented because Rod Brindamore didn't have a ton of time for him, but, I, I mean, I think the... I think his calling card is not high points, high octane PP one guy, right? It's like a no, it's high like, event second pair, yeah, yeah. but transition, I, move the puck, that kind of thing. But yeah. I mean, Stillman's kind of the same guy, but with more physical upside, and Myers is the same guy, but six foot seven, right? Like all of those guys are the same sort of impacts five on five, which is you know a little bit more offensive than defensive with some gaps in terms of their own coverage, uh, own zone coverage. You know, I like all three players in prescribed roles. What I'm worried about is this team's overall lack of defensive conscience up front and on the back end, to mm. be totally honest with you, like absent, you know, Luke Shen, who, by the way, is now their top offensive defenseman. Yes. As Bruce Boudreaux <laughs> joked post game. <laughs> 
<laughs> he's getting it done. I, I hear he's hearing hearing it a bit in terms of like you're on fire, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't he, have, he? He had that amazing. Didn't he have the amazing like coast to coast goal against Ottawa last <laughs> yeah. year? Right. He's he know. He, but still, he's got primary. You still see it from time to time. Primary assists on back to back game winners, man. There you go, Luke Shen moving what, the puck. What else could you want? Top four D man, Luke Shen killing it. Well, and, we, and a fixture in the top four, right? Yeah. I mean, the one thing that's unquestioned is Luke Shen's going to play with Quinn Hughes, and that's well earned. Hard-earned. The other thing we should know, just while we're talking about the defense. Oh, Jack Rathbone. Yeah, Jack Rathbone out. But but uh, do, you hear, like, do you hear Bruce Boudreau talking about it? I didn't hear it. Um, I haven't heard it yet. Bruce Boudreau, the question was put to him, is it hard to find a way to get Rathbone in the lineup now with everyone healthy and, and all these bodies emerging? And his response was, yeah, it's it's going to be hard. Like, in, you know, until injuries mount. And so we'll see where that one goes. Well, and because that's still without Travis Dermott in the mix. Right, yeah. and we'll see when he gets back. But I mean, that's eight defensemen who are clear NHL caliber defensemen that they have there right now, and then you're still adding Dermot. And what? Where does that leave Rathbone? I think it's a very fair question. There's no obvious path into the lineup. No, at this point for him. Well, and if we're being honest, right, it's not like he's made an airtight case to stay. You know, I mean, I don't know that he'd played at a level where you'd think twice about removing him for a Stillman or for a Dermot, and so. You know, at some point, the injuries will mount again. Yep. <laughs> and, like, this team is not now – now that they're healthy, they're going to stay healthy for the whole year. And maybe they'll have one injury, but never two at a time. Like, that's not how this – we've all we've all followed this team long enough to know that's not how this works. Not on Canada's West Coast. So he's going to get another chance at some point here. But you also wonder, like, is it best to get him games? I mean, where does this go? Uh, because I'm sure an, another extended stretch waiting to play, uh, you know, isn't exactly going to go over well with anybody. No, it's not what you want. It's not what the player wants, obviously. It's not what the organization really wants either to be to have a young player in that position. Um, I want to talk about Jim Rutherford. Uh, he spoke, he did a, a, an interesting interview with your colleague at The Athletic, Pierre Lebrun, that people can go check out uh, at The Athletic right now. And, you know, the, the media tour from Senior Canucks leadership continues. Obviously, we had Jim Rutherford speaking on After Hours after the disastrous home opener for the Canucks, Patrick Alvin giving a press conference and, and uh, coming on Canucks Central with Dan Riccio and Satyar Satyo Shah last week, and now Jim Rutherford speaking uh, for a, a, a written interview with Pierre Lebrun. And, you know, lots to dig into uh, from Jim Rutherford and his comments about the direction of the team, his philosophy, how he's reacted early this year. Did you have a kind of overall big picture takeaway uh, from what we heard from Jim Rutherford in that conversation or what we read from Jim Rutherford in that conversation? I mean, you know, the, my only real big picture takeaway was the Canucks won back-to-back games against Seattle and Pittsburgh, and you're happy for the guys because you can just feel yep. the pressure is off, right? All of a sudden, it's way easier to have conversations. Um, guys are feeling good about themselves. And this team isn't a Bedard contender. I'm sorry. I know we liked to, we, we had a, like a brief shining moment where we got to live in this fantasy land, but that's <laughs> not what this team's doing. That's not who this team is. This team... You know, even during the depths of that, what did we say, right? Like, I'm still picking them to be mid-80s at worst, right? Like, this is a – this is a. I haven't changed my mind on this team based on what we've seen through nine games. I'm disappointed that I think they've only outplayed their opponent twice in nine, right? Like, that, I don't like that. I'm not even counting the wins. I think the Philly game and the, and the Pittsburgh game. Yeah. That's it. Like, that's the only games you'd say they were the better team and deserved the wins. They have the wins they deserve, unfortunately, right? Like, that's a problem for me. But I still think, based on the talent level, based on the special teams, based on the goaltending, 
you know, this this still should be a 93, 95 point true talent team. They've put themselves in a bit of a hole, so maybe I downgrade their my expected point totals by three or four, right? But like, this team is what they are. Um, you know, for me, it's not that the mini crisis has passed and all is right again. It's that fundamental change needs to happen, right? That you need to be able to rebuild the blue line. And part of rebuilding a blue line, for sure, is taking some swings on a Dermot and a Bear and a Stillman and hoping you can mine one top four guy, right, through a, a bunch of dudes that you cycle through and, and take swings on. Uh, I prefer that the swings cost you 800 k as opposed to 2.2 or 1.8 with the retention or, you know, 1.45 times 2 or... Uh, 1.5 times 2, whatever, right? Like, I prefer them to be cheaper, but you got to do that. And, you know, I think you look across at the Canucks' opponent tomorrow, right? Like, this is a totally new blue line. We're only two, we're only three years removed from their top three defensemen being Will Butcher, Damon Severson, who's now fourth in Mm -hmm. next time among Devils players, and uh, P.K. Subban, who's retired, right? They've fundamentally redesigned this blue line with four additions, over the course of the last two years. It's not a long time. Two years, right? And one of those guys is in the mold. He's their third defenseman by ice time so far this season, and he's really good. And he's Jonas Siegenthaler, who was a highly drafted player by the Washington Capitals, who sort of just, like, couldn't find his niche in Washington. The Devils traded for him, and he's become a really nice, really mobile, really conscientious defensive piece for them. But mostly they had to do it by, you know, carving out cap space and accumulating draft picks and being ready to pounce. And we hear this all the time whenever I talk about the importance of having cap space to to build a blue line. People say things like, well, you don't just get a Devon Taves every year. You're right, you don't. But in back-to-back years, the Devils have managed to get Adam Graves. Ryan Graves. Ryan Graves. <laughs> wouldn't it be sick if they got Adam Graves? <laughs> I was going to say, wouldn't that be something? What a story. <laughs> and he he's plays back. defense now. Yeah, he's back. Sorry, he's a Ryan top Graves. blue liner. But they got Ryan Graves for what? It was a second, maybe it was two seconds? I think so. Okay, so they get Ryan Graves once, Adam Graves once, wait, Ryan, Ryan Graves, Graves once. Ryan wow. Graves. By the way, Ryan Graves is a good name for a spooky It was a second round Canucks pick talk. and uh, a player okay. as well, a, a not particular. He was a recent uh, second round pick. I sure, believe. okay. Uh, so, point is, you, you make the second round pick, you have extra picks, how do you have extra picks? You trade Taylor Hall at the deadline, right? Like, you do the things that you need to do to make sure you have cap flexibility and assets for when these opportunities present themselves. And then this past summer, they were uh, also last summer, they were able to sign Dougie Hamilton. They went out and got the top available right-handed defenseman, and that contract probably is going to age a little bit suspiciously over time. But for now, Dougie Hamilton is one of the best defensive, uh, offensive defensemen in, mm-hmm. in the sport, and he's still only, what, 28, 29? I mean, he's significantly younger than uh, than Hoiel, at least two years, maybe three. I would guess three. He's 29. 29, yeah. so two. And, um, you know, has about has roughly the same amount of term left, right? Hoiel has five years left. Dougie Hamilton has, uh, I guess, five, six, six. Okay. So, point is, if you have cap space, you can go out and sign a, a big free agent. You can make the trade for uh, Ryan Graves. You can also make the John Marino trade, right, which costs them an, another draft pick uh, and t- Ty Smith, a recent first. Like, that's the market you can play in if you have the asset capital and the cap space to do it. That's how you rebuild a blue line. And so, you know, I appreciated 
uh, like I did when he went on After Hours. I appreciate Rutherford's frankness. I appreciate his willingness to um, talk about his vision for this team. I thought there were some interesting comments on rebuilding or his approach, his rejection of the rebuilding paradigm overall. But I just think we can't overreact one way or another to results like this. Like, the Canucks didn't win two games, and now we don't have to talk about what this team needs big picture. This club's big picture needs are still legion, and they're going to require dramatic, difficult decisions to, you know, properly, durably change this club's direction and fate. Right? This isn't a mini crisis that has passed for me. This is a decade-long crisis of directionlessness that's going to extend beyond this season and that's going to extend through this season even if the Canucks win, as I expect them to, by the way, 35 to 38 games. We can't change our view on this team every time they win and then change it back every time they lose. We're not doing that. I strongly disagree. That's exactly what we should be no, doing. No, we're not. <laughs> this the, I, like this team had a bad start, and it might, it's my, it probably does ding their chances uh, at making the playoffs. But they're still in that you know playoff bubble mix. They should be on true talent. That's who they are. It's just that that's not good enough, and they don't have the asset capital. They don't have the cap flexibility to make the sort of year over year upgrades that a Devils team that's basically had like you can mimic the Devils path over the last decade with the Canucks. Right? Like, there's no real difference except that the Devils had lottery luck and ended up getting a worse player than the Canucks did in the year that they leapfrogged them in the draft, right? Um, Nico Heischer is great, but you'd rather have Elias Pettersson. So, for the, for the most part, though, these teams have had mirror image last 10 years, right? And yet, one team's poised to do an awful lot better over the next decade, and one team feels like they're spinning their wheels, regardless of the fact that they won back-to-back games on Thursday and Friday. A couple of relevant quotes from Rutherford. So, first of all, on you know how his view, if at all, of this team has changed. He says, it hasn't changed from the start of the season. We feel we have good enough players, or enough good players, to contend for a playoff spot. We've dug ourselves a little bit of a hole, but we're not as bad a team as when we were in our losing streak. And now we can't be excited about two wins. You know, we're supposed to win games. We've got to claw ourselves back into the race. Be consistent. Continue to simplify the game with good habits. So there's Rutherford also saying, look, let's let's not get things twisted. It didn't change on the seven-game losing streak, and it's certainly not changing uh, because we've won two games in a row right now. Rutherf- which- Rutherford remains a very, very bright person, yeah. right? This is a very experienced executive. He's a bright guy. Um, you know, I didn't love the first summer that they've had, but he has a really good grasp of team quality, I think. I think he demonstrated that with some of the skeptical commentary about the Bruce There It Is Canucks. I think that's consistent with it. And then the other thing I wanted to read here was, you know, asked specifically about a rebuild. He says, we have to make the team better and we're building the team. People can use whatever words they want as to what that means, but we will continue to build the team until we become a contender to win the cup. And that, look, I know some people will be frustrated by a reluctance to use, you know, the magic word of rebuild. But I've said on the show. I don't really care about the label. Like I completely agree with Jim Rutherford there. I think getting hung up on exactly what label you're using and trying to massage, oh, no, 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 we're not rebuilding, we're retooling or we're reloading. I think that is kind of futile, right? And I have no problem with saying we're just going to keep building until we become a contender to win the cup. My only issue becomes if that turns into an excuse to avoid bold moves, to avoid taking risks, to avoid potentially making a big shakeup to this team because you're afraid of maybe taking a step backward, right? If you if if in the framework that Jim Rutherford describes there, 
you can also justify, you know, oh, hey, you know what? This is just not getting it done, and we're going to make a big splash because we need to really shake things up here, and we need to get a new type of player in. If that is encompassed by what he's describing, then by all means, keep building, keep building until you're a contender to win the Cup. I have no problem with the idea of we don't want to bottom out. I don't think you need to tank. I don't think you need to be bad for five years. I absolutely agree with the the philosophy of just continuing to build, it just can't be, as I've said last week, it can't be about fiddling on the margins. It has to be, there has to be a willingness to be bold and to take some risks at some point. That's the number one priority for me. I, I, where I just, where I just do disagree with you slightly is you need to be able to have a really realistic and harsh assessment of this team's reality, right? Which is that they're fine now, but they're not so great that you need to be afraid of taking a step back. Right there, there's a chance you can take a step back and not actually <laughs> perform any worse. Frankly, right? That's that's the nature of hockey. You can find pieces that are like less highly sought after, less valuable, yeah. that fit together better. Like I'd like to see some of that confidence in action in terms of the moves this club makes. And more than that, you know, to come back to the point that I made on the defense a, a little bit earlier in the comparison with New Jersey, right? Part of rebuilding a defense is finding guys who are undervalued around the league that can be more for you than they were for other teams. But that's to flesh out your second pair, right? What this team needs, like this team has, if you were a really, really good team and you're talking about like, oh, should Stillman Burroughs or Ethan Bear play on the third pair? You're in a good spot. Yeah. That's not this team's issue. It's not filling out the bottom of the roster. It's what they're getting at the top. It's pushing guys down. It's finding three credible top pair guys. That's what, there's no way to do it without cap space. There's just no way to do it without either cap space or prospect capital, or ideally both of those things in service to one another. You know, when I'm talking about amassing draft picks, I'm not talking about making draft picks. I'm talking about using them to get Graves, to get Marino. I'm talking about using your cap space for that. We're seeing the impact that it's had on the devil's impact uh, ability to control games. That's what this team's going to need to do, and I don't see how you get there without a little bit of pain, without a little bit of long-term planning that, frankly, involves being willing to take a step back short-term. That's that's my view of it, and it's not going to change even if the Canucks beat the Devils on, on Tuesday. Frankly, it's probably not going to change if they sweep this homestand, to be totally honest with you, because I sort of see this team as what they are, and I see what they are as, you know, like, fine, fine. You know, it should be fun. I hope it's fun. But it's not going to win a cup. It's Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. We will debut a new segment with our pal, Gemma Karsten-Smith from the Canadian Press. That is coming up next. It is the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drantz with you. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. We are live at Rogers Arena, but always live from the Kintec studio as well. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650, again, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And uh, we'll now go to the phone line. We are very pleased to be joined uh, by our friend, one of the best, from the Canadian press covering the Canucks, Gemma Karsten-Smith. Gemma, thanks as always. How are you? 
I'm wonderful. Happy Halloween, folks. Yes, happy Halloween. So we're going to debut an exciting new segment here. But before we get into that, do you have uh, are you a, are you a costume person? Do you have a, an elaborate costume on tap for tonight, Jen? I have a I have an almost three year old, so that is my elaborate costume. Um, <laughs> she was very upset this morning that her crown had tape on it, and so we had to go find a new crown this morning. So. Oh no. No, I didn't realize that parents are also supposed to dress up for trick-or-treating, so I'm going to slap something together. But, uh, well, yeah. my you don't, uh, ha- you don't have to. Trust me. Okay. <laughs> In right. my okay. experience, I'm not going to be dressing up tonight. I can assure you that much. So okay. All <laughs> don't right. feel too much pressure. Anyways, Phew, much to, much to my wife's this, chagrin, I will not be dressing up. Um, getting this Elsa costume together was more than enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. No doubt about that. Uh, so what we wanted to do today is we're, we're calling it From the Wire, and we're going to play some sound bites back, some of the most interesting audio clips, tidbits from Canucks personnel, whether it's players, coaches, management, uh, from the last week. And we'll, we'll run through them, we'll tee them up, uh, and then we'll have a bit of conversation about them, get your gloss on them as well, and go through some of those interesting clips here and you know hey the great thing about covering the Canucks there's never any shortage of uh, of things to talk about and controversy and and interesting sound bites to parse so I'll throw to it here and then we'll come back and we'll we'll have a chat about it but first up let's hear from Canucks general manager Patrick Alvin. I think within this group I think we can demand more of each other and demand more of this group um, by adding more uh, younger character driven players uh, to complement this group, it's, it's great more competition, internal competition. I think that's what good teams have. So, Gemma, that is Patrick Alvin from earlier this week. What stands out to you uh, about what the Canucks GM had to say there? How many times in the last week? First of all, when have we ever heard from the GM like seven days in a row it felt mm. like? Um, second of all, though, uh, when have we heard him or AGM say so consistently, we need to demand more of each other. We need more from our top players. It, it just again and again and again, he's saying that what I hear is he's saying that this lineup is too comfortable. Uh, and that's part of what happened with that seven game skit is that the top players aren't performing. They need to do more. And that it's, the losses really hang on them. Uh, and I think if you look at the score sheet during that seven-game skin, because obviously things have turned around slightly uh, in Seattle and then at home on Friday, uh, you, you were seeing a lot of um, goose eggs where uh, you're expecting to see guys producing. So I think that's what Alvin's referring to there. Uh, you can't have only Horvat and Pedersen scoring on your in your top nine. And, and Jim, what was it about this clip that caused you to select it as just something where you could read more into it than what may have mm-hmm. met the eye? Yeah, I think we're saying adding young, character-driven guys to create competition. We we saw him do that last week, right? Like, yeah, he he needed to bring in some some uh, some life on, especially on the blue line. But he, you did see him bring in some young guys, uh, Stednika and Bear, and even even. Um, uh, Lane Pier- Pearson, Pedersen, um, Peterson, because we don't have enough of those already, right? Uh, <laughs> it's not confusing enough. All these P son names, anyway. Um, yeah, I think that you you see him trying to to drive these guys to to not be so comfortable in their spots and to to think that oh maybe there is someone coming for my job. So uh, I think I think that's really interesting. It's something we don't often see from the front office. Is that kind of um, uh, pushing, especially during, you'll see it in training camp, but not so much once the regular season gets going. So that's what intrigued me about uh, what Alvin said. And, you know, it's, it's, 
it's interesting to hear it kind of early in the season like that, Gemma, but I also think one of the things that's been maybe a little confusing for me and I think for a lot of our listeners as well is there's been repeated commentary kind of taking aim at, you know, whether it's explicitly the top players and they have to play better or the habits of the team. You know, there's been a lot of commentary like that, but it, it hasn't been matched up with a willingness to kind of do bold things to shake up shake up the team. And it's a little surprising to hear, you know, in, on the one hand, the fairly pointed criticism of the team, but the moves we have seen, you know, first of all, they've, you know, they re-sign JT Miller, they re-sign Brock Besser, they bring in Ilya Mikheyev. They don't necessarily seem to line up with the diagnosis that we hear a lot of the time from management. Absolutely. And at some point, Alvin's going to have to wear that. He's not new anymore. He's been he's been with this club for a while now, and he has made moves. So at some point, he's going to have to stop pointing the finger at the group and say, hey, I'm, I'm not doing what I said I was going to do, right? Or, like, we all know he's never going to say that, but... Um, he's going to have to wear it a little bit more and say uh, we need to move in either a different direction or or make the actions match the words. Gemma, what do you think the word young <laughs> is doing there, right? Like right? it has to come from young character guys. Um, yeah. I mean, it feels like the word young is doing a fair bit of work or at least is pointed. What do you think he means by that in particular? Does he not love the word young? Like, we are the sixth <laughs> youngest team in the NHL. And, like, right. I mean, yes, okay, but also, like, look at your. Anyway. Um, <laughs> JT Miller's going to be 30 by the end of this year. Um, and, he, and you just signed him into a seven year deal that doesn't kick in until next season. Cool. Um, yeah. So I, Six youngest, and, though. <laughs> yeah, six youngest. But, like, anyway. Uh, I think. He said before that 26, or it was either him or Rutherford, he said that 26, they, they don't want to sign anyone who's older than 26, which seems slightly arbitrary to me because, like, there are lots of guys who um, kind of uh, hit a groove before or after that magical number. Um, but for Alvin and Rutherford, it seems to be that 26 is the magic number. But then, again, you go out and you do. You did sign JT Miller to this giant deal, and there's whatever is going to happen with Horvat, and you've got OEL on a long-term contract, which I know that they didn't bring in, but, like, they also haven't got rid of either. So, like, you're saying that this is where you want to be, and then, again, actions matching words. Uh, Je- talking to Gemma Carson-Smith here on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Let's continue to uh, hear some of the most interesting sound bites from the Canucks over the past week. Here is head coach Bruce Boudreau. He's, a, he's an NHL defenseman, first of all. and he's the, If he's solid, he can skate and he can move the puck. It's uh, something I think, you know, we've, uh, we have in Quinn, but when he's out of the lineup, there's and, and you have it in OEL, but you know the other guys are more of a, a hard-nosed defensive kind of core, and uh, in today's world, you need uh, you need those puck-moving defensemen to get it to the forward. So we're hoping that's what he brings. That's uh, Bruce Boudreau talking about new acquisition Ethan Bear on the blue line. Now, what jumps out to you from that clip from the head coach, Gemma? Two things. I think there's almost a sigh of relief from Boudreau that <laughs> yeah. he's like, "Oh, I've been asking for this for so long," um, but also. I don't know that there is going to be exactly what uh, the kind of puck moving defenseman that they want. So we'll see. He's he's been lined up with Stillman uh, yesterday and today, I think, at practice. So 
we'll see what happens. But wasn't the relief in Bruce's voice just so obvious? That description of the rest of the blue line is defensive and hard-nosed and kind of um, uh, – that kind of core was really interesting. Because well, especially- Sorry, but uh, but especially no. because you know he he name checks Quinn Hughes, who obviously exactly. can do it, but he's been out of the lineup. But then he also name checks OEL, and the thing is, you're not getting that from OEL right now. He's not been that player to start the season, so no. yeah, you can say, oh well, we get it from OEL, but you're not really getting it right now from Oliver Ekman yeah. Larson. So I, I, I am just concerned that it's going to be that kind of story again with Bear. And I, I really hope not because I think that Bear is a great young kid who um, has a great backstory, and I, I want to see him do well. Um, I just hope that he's put in a position to succeed. And I think that he'll get every opportunity here. I think that Bruce really, really wants him to do well and will uh, do everything in his power to uh, make him that puck-moving defenseman that this team so obviously needs. Bruce is such a positive guy that we don't often get any pointed commentary or, or even things that allude directly to pointed commentary of what he's working with. Do you think that was as close as we'll get? Yes. Gemma. 100%. I do think that's as close as we'll get. And you'll notice that he he wasn't even like uh, begrudging really that the the defensive hard-nosed kind of core. He he made it sound almost like uh, you need those kind of that you need those kind of guys, but like it's so obvious from just him bringing it up and saying those words that it's that a puck moving um, offensive defenseman is something that is so such a glaring gaping hole in this lineup. But yeah, we don't get a lot. Um, it's always the sunny side with Bruce. Um, and even, even during that seven game skid, he was always trying to spin the positive and always, and I think that's just who he is as a person and what makes him uh, the kind of coach that he is. But it was, uh, that's why this clip jumped out to me so much because we very rarely hear that, uh, that kind of, Oh, this is what we need. What 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 are your maybe your areas of concern for Bear? You know, you mentioned maybe it's not going to work out uh, in exactly the way they hope for. Is that maybe he's just him being going to be asked to do a little too much, given what else they have on the blue line, or what else is kind of sparking your concern there? It's it's been a while since he's produced, um, and if so, if they're looking for him to put up points, I don't know that that's going to be uh, a strong seat for him. But he, I think that he is faster than a lot of the guys you've got on the lineup right now, and he does obviously know how to move the puck. It's just a question of, like, can he make that work, and can he transition that to uh, this lineup? The other uh, thing is this kid, the kid has not played in ages. So yeah. where is his fitness at right now? Yeah, that's a very, very fair question. We'll see how he, how he eases into things. I'd add, here. too, yesterday at practice, I noted to Bruce Boudreaux that he'd been, you know, you have to rebuild a guy effectively mm. if they have been a healthy scratch for 21 straight games and, and Boudreaux's eyes kind of widened and he was like is that how many games it's yeah. been and I was like dating back to last season yeah and then he said well I, I know how to build guys back up <laughs> <laughs> and you just know that that's exactly what he knows how to do uh, but you know I, I did think it was interesting that uh you know, he knew about this season, but I think the extent to which Bear had had been on the outs in Carolina was, um, you know, news to him, or, or at least the depths of it was news to him a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, this is what Bruce knows how to do. Um, <laughs> maybe he didn't recognize the uh, the magnitude of this project, but uh, you saw it last year with Besser, right? And um, mm. I think that he'll have a similar impact on uh, Bear. 
Speaking of uh, Canucks puck-moving defenseman, Quinn Hughes back at practice, looks set to join the team on the ice against the Devils tomorrow. Let's hear from Canucks defenseman Quinn Hughes. I don't know if you remember, I missed a week um, before the season, and then I practiced, uh, uh, where was it, uh, UBC, and then we left for Edmonton, so I was dealing with it then, but it was still a little sore, but I thought it was behind me, and then after every game, it just, you know, got worse, and then to a point where we realized we had to shut it down for a minute. That's Quinn Hughes speaking about uh, some of the injury problems he was dealing with before he was actually shut down and now set to get back in the lineup. And, you know, to hear him lay it out and lay out the timeline and how it was working, Gemma, it it explains a lot about what we were seeing from Quinn Hughes early in the season, doesn't it? 100%. And he is not the only guy playing through injury. We heard the same thing about Curtis Lazar last last week. I don't know. All the days run together now. Um, But he was run, he was playing through an, an injury that he suffered early in the season. So how many guys are playing through injury? And, and what does that say about what we've seen so far? And can these guys get healthy again, right? So I, I, I don't have answers to any of that, but that's what stuck out to me about what um, Hughes is saying. Like, can you imagine this guy, when he, when he left, when he, um, his last game, he was playing an average of 27 minutes uh, a night. Can you imagine playing 27 minutes a night with a lower body injury? I don't know what, sorry, what the lower body injury is because we didn't get clarification on that. But like any injury, 27 minutes a night, and you're getting tough matchups. Like, yeah, I, I, I would be injured as well. It's amazing because the Canucks are second in the NHL to this point in the season in man games lost to injury at, at the moment, and yet. You know, the only team ahead of them is Montreal, and, and the numbers count guys like Carey Price, right, who we all mm-hmm. sort of knew were going to miss time. But it's not just about the man games lost. It's also the guys like Lazar and Hughes that are playing hobbled. And this mm-hmm. team does seem to have been bit worse than most. I know injuries are never an excuse. I don't have time for them as an excuse. But it is worth noting just how bit this team has been by the injury bug in the early going. So bit, and this comes after major changes to the training and medical staff over the offseason. I'm not. I'm definitely not saying that that is why these injuries are happening. I, I, I don't know correlation, causation, whatever. But um, it's it's interesting that all of this has happened at the same time. It comes after they they didn't get to spend most of the preseason at at their facility at Rogers, right? They were out at UBC and uh, out at Eight Rings and over, up at Whistler. So like, I think all of this could potentially add up to um, things getting looked over, things getting misdiagnosed, not misdiagnosed, but um, downplayed or whatever. So, and, and it's very obvious that guys have been playing through it and that has not made it better. It's probably made them lose more games in the long run. Um, so I'm, I'm very interested to see guys get back into the lineup, stay healthy, and uh, what this, this Canucks group actually looks like when it's healthy. One thing that's been interesting, too, is the repeated commentary, and it began behind the scenes as the team was playing poorly in the preseason, where management was actually quite disappointed by by some of the performances, and then actually became explicit text when Rutherford commented to Sportsnet and McIntyre that, you know, he wasn't surprised by the early season results because the team hadn't had a particularly strong training camp. Uh, all of this sort of commingles for me, and poses the question, like, how badly does this team need the stability that comes with having, like, a, a guaranteed home, whether it's a practice facility or something like that, as opposed to jumping around and uh, working in various different places? Like, do you think it, that is sort of 
part and parcel? Is that underneath all of this commentary about preparedness and training camp and injuries? It, it, would that help? Is that what this club needs? I think it has to be, right? I, I think it absolutely has to be. It's so hard. This is a league where these little minute differences make the big difference on the ice, mm. right? Um, this it's a, it's a league of margins. And if you are missing your guys because of injury, those are big margins. Those margins get giant when you're missing Quinn Hughes and Brock Besser and, 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 you know, so any advantage you can have, anything you can do to make your players comfortable, make your players healthy, all of those things you should be jumping on. And, that's not just management, that's ownership, because ownership still signs all the checks. So uh, I think that there's a reason that we're hearing this from Rutherford and from Albion. Jim, I want to throw you a question coming from a listener in the text inbox, the Dunbar Lumber text inbox 650-650. They, say, they ask, Boudreaux says he needs puck-moving defensemen, but he hardly played Jack Rathbone. Should he use what he has there? That comes in from Reg. Just wanted to get your reaction to that. I know I'm bopping and weaving a bit uh, to a no. previous topic, but thought it was a good question. Figured I'd present that for you as we uh, as we kick this out. It is a good question, but we haven't seen from Jack Rathbone what we saw from Jack Rathbone in the AHL. Um, so his play has not translated at it, at the NHL level. He's got in some games recently, and I think he's been underwhelming. Um, so yes, Boudreaux should use what he has, but what he has isn't working there right this moment. So I, you'll notice that Rathbone hasn't been sent back down. Breezebaugh's the one who, who went back to Abbotsford. So I think that he's going to get more chances, um, but I don't know how many more chances. And if he wants to stick up here with the big team, he's got to show that he, he can perform at, uh, at the big, big league level. Well, and I'm some. I've been a big proponent of Jack Rathbone, even in preseason, saying you know I think the best version of this Canucks defense involves having Jack Rathbone in it. Having said that, you know you look at last season under Travis Green, and you know falls out of favor. He's there to start the year, but falls out of favor. Ends up going back down to the AHL, and now with Bruce Boudreau here, takes a while to get into a game. Looks like he's going to come out tomorrow, not being played a lot. And I that's always something that kind of causes my ears to perk up when it's multiple different coaches maybe coming to the same conclusion. It, it's great to say, well, you gotta you gotta give Rathbone a chance. You gotta give Rathbone a chance. But I think clearly there's something there that is causing these coaches to choose other players over them when they're trying to win games. Absolutely, and and when you're trying to dig your whole your way out of a seven game losing skid, you're gonna go to the guys that you know you can rely on. And Rathbone hasn't proven that he can be relied on, even even in his uh, NHL experience this season. So you you gotta earn it, right? Uh, and he hasn't yet. So, uh, like I said, he's not going back down to Abbotsford right this moment. So he's got time, but he's got to step it up. Final couple of minutes here with uh, our pal Gemma Carson-Smith from the Canadian Press. From the Wire news segment in the last clip, the newest Canucks defenseman, Ethan Bear. Here's Ethan Bear. It's been a while since I've played, and, you know, it's been a lot of uh, skating and working out, so it's just going to be really um, nice to just honestly get to play a game and, and compete again, and um, that's what I'm looking forward to the most. That is newest Canucks defenseman Ethan Bear, as we talked about. Hasn't played in a long time, but, uh, you know, I also think the – look, we always talk about the vibes a lot with the Canucks, and I think Ethan Bear seems poised to bring some good vibes to the Vancouver Canucks when he starts skating on the ice in actual games with the team, Gemma. 
And how big are those good vibes going to be? Oh, like, man. <laughs> I mean, Friday night in the locker room was better than I've seen it all season. So that was nice. <laughs> it was nice to see you guys joking and, like, smiling instead of, <laughs> like, hating our presence every second we were in there. That was nice. Um, but, yeah, I think, that, I think that Bear is going to bring some good vibes. Um, I think that he's also just someone who's so grateful for this new opportunity. He, he talked a bit about wanting – about requesting a trade like at the very beginning of the season or in the off season, I guess. Um, and just waiting and waiting and, and all the work he did to stay in shape to be ready for this. So um, I guess we'll see if that work has paid off, but this is somebody who is not going to take this for granted. This is somebody who, who knows what this means and is going to work his tail off. And I think that's what this team needs right now, right? This is a team that's pretty desperate for wins, desperate for points and desperate for everyone to just, take that extra step, Ethan Bear is going to be someone who'll do it. Gemma, always really appreciate the time. Enjoyed uh, the, the the new segment that we debuted here today. I look forward to doing it again next week. Thanks so much, guys. Good, Lots of fun. Good luck with the costume tonight. <laughs> Thanks. Happy Halloween. <laughs> yeah, happy yeah, Halloween, Gemma. That is Gemma Karsten-Smith, who covers the Canucks, uh, among other sports for the Canadian press here in Vancouver, offering her take on some of those interesting, notable quotes from the Canucks over the past week or so. And just to, uh, you know, we were talking about Quinn Hughes and the minute load. And, okay, it's great that he's, you know, he took the time off, reset, hopefully get healthy, hit the ground running. You know, my big question is, to what degree are they going to be able to manage his minute load coming back, Mm. given what they're getting from Oliver ekman Larson right now, and given what else they have on the left side? That's going to be, I think, a major challenge for Bruce Boudreaux and the coaching staff is to make sure you're not pushing Quinn Hughes into that kind of red zone in terms of minutes. You're not relying on him so much, even though he also brings this completely unique skill set that you desperately need and you desperately want to have on your blue line. Yeah, no, and I mean, the blue line is the big question. We're going to keep talking about it, right? It's going to be a lot of work, and we'll see, like, you know, the conversation has been... This is what the blue line is. Now it's going to metastasize or change, evolve into being what have Bear and Stillman brought, right? Mm. Is it good enough now? Is it good enough now? Like, that's going to be our question now for the next, what, 10, 15, 20 games? Yeah. And we'll see, right? We're, we're going to see now uh, what this blue line can do. If how, how much different does this look when you're rolling out Hughes, Myers, Oliver Ekman, Larson, Dermott, Stillman, Bear? As an example, right? In a world where Shen is your seven, how much different does this blue line look? Do we ever see it? <laughs> right? Yeah, is everyone healthy at the same time to actually see the kind of idealized version of this blue line? Well, and, and with the team pressed up against the cap and deeply into LTI, how much was the bear acquisition motivated by what's occurred with Tucker Pullman and Travis Dermott as well, right? So, I mean, there's still a lot of questions lingering around this blue line. My concern remains at the top, right? (laughs) My concern remains that you need three or four, not two top pair defensemen and two second pair defensemen. You need need three to four top pair defensemen to really compete credibly in this league. That means the Canucks have a lot of top pair defensemen to add without a ton of money to add it. Very few prospects coming. And dare I say it, not a lot of cap flexibility with which to add those pieces that that you know that's the whole picture that's the whole thing 
and I just can't get over it. I'm not going to get over it. I'm not going to stop talking about it. <laughs> I'm not going to get over I'm it. I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not. And uh, and yet, I'm curious to see what Bear and Stillman can bring. You know, Stillman now that he's healthy again. Um, you know, I'm, I am curious to see how much they can help this team move the puck and do some of the things this club hasn't been able to do at a high enough level to win consistently yet. Yet. But we've got a lot of time. Yeah, still. So. There's a lot of season left. <laughs> We're sure like 12% is. through the year. We've got a ton of time. It's, it feels like we've lived more season already than we actually oh have, right? With I all know. of the ups and downs and press conferences. Well, and... the seven-game losing streak felt like a year. It felt yeah. like a whole season. It did. With the way that it was the rhythms of it and the chronic disappointment in the team's form. But they've won back-to-back. They've at least given themselves the space to exhale, right? And... Some space to get a little healthier. You know, now you've got, now you've got the wind at your back. You've got Hughes coming back. You've got a couple young defensemen who haven't played much coming back into the lineup in Stillman and Bear. Right, this defense core that we're going to see likely on Tuesday looks nothing like the one that won back to back in mm-hmm. Seattle and and in Vancouver against Pittsburgh. So, how much does that change what this team looks like? I think that's sort of the big question of this week. Because this team needs it to look pretty different if they're going to get anywhere close to the playoff bubble we expect them to be on. Yeah, and you heard, I mean, we talked about it with Gemma, right? But the relief from Bruce Boudreaux to have a player like Ethan Bear coming into the lineup. You know, he's obviously excited for the opportunity. There's going to be big expectations on him, though, just because of what they desperately need in this lineup. And that, as you said, that's going to be the question of the week, of the next few weeks here, I think, is how much of a shot in the arm do those additions actually give this team? Does it change, you know, how we look at them at least for this year? We can get in the conversation beyond that, uh, which obviously we will do as well. But that in the here and now, it's going to be what are these guys adding to the team? 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Final segment of the day coming up. We're live at Rogers Arena uh, where the Canucks are busily preparing for that major press conference that uh, you'll be able to hear on 650 later today at 2.30. Final segment coming up right here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Hey, what's going on? Welcome back to the special Halloween edition here of Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650 with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance. Final segment of the show. Not a game day for the Canucks. They're back in action against the Devils tomorrow night, but we were still we are still live here at Rogers Arena. Uh, coming to you live from the Kintech studio, in spirit at least, because we are at Rogers Arena. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative is at Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, I do want to talk, just touch on a, a couple of other comments from Jim Rutherford in a little bit, but always happy to get questions in from uh, from our listeners, 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. So if you got anything on your mind you want us to touch on here in the final segment, send it in. Earlier, Keith said, can we chat about Pod Colson and the importance of his progression? By the eye test, he's looked good, but not by the counting stats. What's up, says Keith with the silly Pod Colson. And I mean, you know, I'll let you weigh in on this too, obviously, Drance, but my big thing is I'm not, that's, you know, the, the this big explosion of point production for Vasily Pod Colson would be really nice. 
But that's not the key thing for me from Pod Colson, right? What you're ultimately expecting from him is to be more of that kind of two-way possession-driving player. And I just want to see – I'm I'm okay with much kind of steadier growth from Pod Colson than, you know, this kind of exponential, oh, wow, he's taking this amazing step forward in his sophomore season and all of a sudden he's putting up all of these points. Offensively, I you know, I think if you're watching – Pod Colson really closely, you'll see that there's a few reads that he still makes that aren't necessarily the reads that make sense on the North American sheet, right? He figured out defense so quickly in, in terms of defending in North America. He figured out sort of the positioning part of the NHL so quickly, but I don't know that he's necessarily figured out the be an impactful power forward in terms of supporting your team with the puck or with the puck himself mm. uh, necessarily as quickly. And that's okay. These are details that take some time. Uh, you know, one thing to watch for I've noticed a couple times is um, he'll be on a two-on-one or, or a potential two-on-one, and instead of driving the net really hard, he'll almost slide behind the puck carrier so it turns it into a one-on-two. You know, as opposed to driving the net and really stressing out and buying space the way you expect bigger-bodied offensive players to do. Small detail, right? Like, small things that he will figure out, right? These aren't problems with his game. It's not a lack of hockey sense or hockey IQ with him. It's just an experience thing. It's a reps thing. It's understanding how to play a power-forward game offensively that I think he's still figuring out. And, and as he figures those things out, I do think he's at a point where... He takes a little bit too much off the table as a attacking piece to be a fixture in the top six. And without being a fixture in the top six, he's going to be a 25-point player, right? Like, that's he doesn't play PP1. Mm-hmm. If he's not in the top six, he's going to be a 25-point guy. If you're, a, if you're a top six guy, if you're a second-line winger, for example, who doesn't get copious PP1 time, 35 points is, like, really, really good high-end production for a, for a top six forward who plays no PP. Um, you know, take 10 points off of that. That's probably where your expectations should be at for pod goals. And I'd like to see 10 goals, 15 assists. For me, that would be progress. Because what I'm really watching is him to fi- is to watch him figure out how to do some of those additional items, some of those smaller things that he's going to need to do if he's going to play that heavy press role that I've been really desperate to cast him in <laughs> over, over the course of the past year. Uh, and remain convinced that he will eventually fill for this team. Well, and you just look at it, you know, especially now with JT Miller playing on the wing, right? Mm. So you've got Garland and Miller on the top line with Horvat. You've got Mikheyev, who they just gave a big money to, playing with Pedersen. Kuzmenko is there as well. I wouldn't say Kuzmenko is locked into the top six, but obviously an off- a very offensively talented guy that they've liked with Pedersen so far. You know, Besser is still in the mix, obviously. Tanner Pearson's a veteran option. Niels Hoaglander, like It is a crowded situation on the wing. So there's no... For him to be... You know, right now he was skating on the fourth line of practice today with Niels Amon and Dakota Joshua. I don't think that's not a condemnation of Vasily Podkolzin. Like, I think we've seen that Bruce Boudreaux trusts Podkolzin quite a bit. He's not afraid to put him out there. This isn't a Niels Hoaglander situation, right, where you're wondering, like, oh, does the coach actually – how much does the coach actually like this player? How much does he want him out there? I have no doubt that Boudreaux has a lot of confidence in Podkolzin. It's just – it's crowded. Like, there's no one you can obviously look at and say, like, oh, how is that guy in the top six over Vasily Podkolzin? And, you know, I know uh, Batch said he was getting some power play two work, right, Not net, at the net front with that unit. But that would feel like a Besser placeholder, no? 
especially now yep. that Mikheyev's looked pretty dynamic. Or not, you know, I want to be careful about how I talk about Mikheyev has five points in six games, right? He's got a 15% on-ice shooting clip. Um, I don't know that the two games that Kuzmenko, Mikheyev, and Pedersen have played that the Canucks have won of late have been the strongest games from the Pedersen line. So I, I remain a little bit skeptical about like Mikheyev's long-term fit there. But while it's working, and Bruce Boudreaux particularly called out the work of PP2, was it after the Seattle game? No, after the Pittsburgh game. Mm. So, you know, so long as that's the case, you'd think Besser goes back to the net front on PP2. Um, you know, I still remain convinced he should be at the net front on PP1. Uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll we'll see exactly how that all shakes itself out, right? Like, I'm convinced that Brock Besser is going to clearly make a case that he needs to be in the top six, that he clearly needs to be on PP1. I think that'll sort itself out, you know, naturally. I don't think it's something that you need to worry about um, or, or sort of debate at, at too great a length. The fact for me, though, is right now, you know, Pod Colson is still figuring out how to be an offensive, a productive offensive player in this league. I just don't think he's there yet. And so as he develops for a team that's interested in winning now, I think, you know, you got to put him in a bottom six role and give him some patience and some time to, to figure it out. What we're going to see, like, this is a new look bottom six too, right? This Dudnika, yes. Pearson, Hoaglander group, you know, could Pod Colson end up sliding up there eventually? One would think. One would think that's inevitable the way that, you know, Niels Hoaglander seems to succumb to a different type of gravity than everyone else and drop further down the lineup the moment he gives anyone any cause to do so. Uh, so, you know, we'll see exactly where it goes, but I think there's a fair bit of offensive development that Pod Colson's still going to need to go through. He does need to get reps when he gets a chance to. I think we saw some of it toward the end of last year that maybe had us salivating, you know, had us sort of thinking that maybe he was a little bit ahead of his progression than uh, than he is. But, you know, it's going to be a process. And there's going to be a process. There's been him. flashes this year, too, of, oh, wow, that was a really nice pass. You know, I didn't necessarily know Puck Colson had that in his, his game. But his, it's a flash. It's flashes at this no, point. No, but his puck carrying is good. His puck carrying has improved. His playmaking has improved, right? I think uh, Connor Garland, I brought it up to Connor Garland, and Connor Garland immediately brought it back to Pod Colson's facility with English, which I found fascinating, right? Because, of course, so much of playmaking is, in fact, uh, a variation. It's a different expression of communication skills yep. with your teammates, chemistry. Right, that ineffable, ineffable um, sort of sense that a passer ultimately has. You know, you, you get to a point where, um, you know, I was talking to Adam Oates for a feature I'm working on. He was talking about how you play long enough, you learn that the speed of a pass can beat the goalie. Right? It's not just the location. You're also at a point where, or he got to a point where he was waiting passes specifically to help the shooters. Uh, you know, the Twins definitely got to that level. Like, if you're a ridiculous playmaker, you get to that level. Um, you know, Pod Colson's obviously not not that. No one expects him to be Adam, Adam Oates. <laughs> but, you know, there is some playmaking. There's, there's so much high-end hockey IQ. Like, everything about him screams it, right? You can see it in the work ethic. You can see it in the positioning. You can see it with how quickly he figured out how to be at least a passable defender on the North American sheet. I, I do think that offensively... Regardless of his personal toolkit, his ability to carry the puck, the, the shooting skills, right? There is an additional layer of sort of awareness, offensive awareness, that he's still learning. And, and I see it pretty regularly, and I, I encourage our listeners to watch for it too, because you'll notice it.
I think the other thing with Pod Colson, and look, obviously he is still developing. He's still learning the North American game. But now that the Canucks do actually have a bit of a, a bit of depth at wing, they're going to be decent players, good players, who end up playing a little bit farther down the lineup, and that's going to limit their scoring, and it's not a reflection on them as players. And that's ultimately where you want to get as a franchise, right? Where, hey, this guy on some teams, he could be a really credible middle six player. He could get more offensive opportunities, but he's not getting them here. And then all of a sudden you look at the end of the year and he has 30 points. You're like, oh, well, he's not living up. I thought this guy was more of a 30-point guy. It's like, well, he would be on another team. On a worse team, he would be because he'd be playing higher up the lineup. That's, sure. That's where you should be trying to get to. I'm not saying they're there yet, but that's kind of a fact of life when you build up a certain amount of depth uh, in your organization. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber Tech line. You can keep your thoughts coming in. Any other questions you want us to touch in? I did just want to bring up a couple of other quotes from the Canucks president of hockey operations. Uh, we touched on it earlier, his conversation with your athletic colleague, Pierre Lebrun, uh, that's up now. Really insightful piece. Lots of great quotes from Jim Rutherford in it. I wanted to touch on his comments on JT Miller and Bo Horvat. So first was... Uh, Rutherford responding to the fact that maybe there was a little bit of surprise from some corners when they signed JT, and here's what he had to say. He says, other people said, we're surprised you signed JT. Well, I don't know what the surprise is. When you're trying to transition your team and build it, moving out your top players is not the way to do it, in my opinion. JT brings a lot to our team. Not only his offensive production, but he's just done some things that I've been really impressed with. You know when he's hurt, he still wants to play. He wants to do what he can to help the team win. He wants to win. It's hard to find players like that. He's a two-positional player. He brings a lot to our team. And I know there's been some kind of buyer's remorse from our fans and or from Canucks fans and our listeners. This is you uh, talking, transfer. not him. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. no. Oh, sorry, I'm back. I'm back to talking. That was the end of the quote. The end of the quote was he brings a lot to our team. Boom, finished. That's Jim Rutherford. Now Jamie's talking. We have seen in the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line uh, a lot of you know people saying, oh, my goodness, I can't believe they did the Miller deal. I can't believe, you know, I, uh, I'd love to take that package from the Rangers that we've heard reported now. Rutherford standing very, very solid, not surprisingly so, uh, not feeling any any buyer's remorse on the JT Miller deal right now from Jim Rutherford. Yeah, I think the – so there's a lot to unpack there. I think what's interesting about the Miller discussion is, you know, the evolution from, you know, strengthens us down the middle. We needed to lock up one of our two centermen and the fact that he's moved to the wing and now the, the line is that he's a two-positional player. Yeah. Um, you know, if JT Miller's not a center <laughs> over the life of this contract, that changes things, right? Because that means regardless of whether or not Horvat walks at the end of the season or the Canucks re-sign him, there's a certain amount of money that needs to be proportioned to flesh out your center depth. I mean, this is what the Canucks have signed down the middle beyond this season at the moment, right? Elias Pettersson, Jack Studnika, who's, you know, a center maybe, right? Neil Zaman. I like him as a fourth-line center. Don't really see the top nine potential yet, to be totally honest with you. And Curtis Lazar, same story, right? I mean, Dakota Joshua, if you want to go down that line. But, I mean, that's what we're talking about, right? If Miller's not a center and Horvat's not signed, that's a huge issue, right? Like, that's something that you're going to need to – you don't need just one. You need two. You need two. And this sort of gets us back to the overall conversation we've been having about what happens next, what happens long-term. You know, even if the cap goes up $4 million, which you know I'm fading that. <laughs> you know I'm fading that. But let's say, you know, the NHL's rosiest production or predictions, projections, 
excuse me, wow, goodness, come to life. You know, you're still looking at a team that <laughs> something like 15 and a half, 15 and a half million in space, which could get eaten into further if the guys like Kuzmenko and Pod Colson hit a few bonuses here and there, right? Niels Hoaglander as well. So it could be a little less, but let's say 15 and a half, because again, we're going as generous as we can to illustrate the thing, right? That's with, again, Patterson, Studnika, Amon, Lazar as your center signed. So you're going to spend, you're going to need to spend at least half of your cap space just on that. Meanwhile, on the right side of your defense, the guys who you've, you'll have signed would be Myers and Pullman, right? Bear's going to be up in an RFA. Mm-hmm. Dermot's going to be up in an RFA. Hoaglander's going to be up in an RFA. Shen, Burroughs, up, UFAs, who've done a fair bit to help their value, by the way. And Bohorvat. I mean, it's going to get really tight again, which sort of, just to bring this conversation back around to where I always land, illustrates the overall issue. The, the fact that, you know, this team as constructed may be really difficult to improve, right? And as it stands now... I know we're feeling good after two straight wins, but it's two five and two. You know, you still a big hole. You think about the panic in Toronto today, and, and they have they have four wins. Right? Like, what are we talking about? So, it's vital. It's vital that this team figure out. You know, can Miller slide back to center? Can you build around Miller at center? Um, and that's sort of the big question because the other thing that. You know, Rutherford noted at length to Pierre is that despite the fact that talks have been quiet for the last couple of weeks, as per Patrick Alvin last week, mm-hmm. um, Bo Horvat, the club's intention remains to sign him. Yep. Okay. Okay. Well, that's going to be a big number. And now all of a sudden you're talking about eight and a half best case scenario on all fronts in cap space and a ton of work to do. And just to... Uh to, to get them to the listeners here, Rutherford's comments on Horvat. He says, I'm very proud of how he's handled the situation. He's stayed focused. He's played his game. He's played well for us. The contract, we have a difference of opinion as to where that number lies. That's where we are at this point. LeBron asks him, do you still hope to get him signed? Yes, Rutherford said. So as you said, reiterating that they still want to get him signed. But the Miller position thing, if you don't feel really, really confident with him down the middle long term, at least for the next three, four, five years. You have to. Right, like because you otherwise can't, you can't. You then can't the, have changed your mind this quickly. You can't. You just paid out fifty-six million dollars on the idea that he was a one-two punch with Pedersen. And because then all of a sudden it completely complicates. It throws a huge wrench into everything you're trying to do with Horvat. If you're looking at it and saying, "Oh man, we might only have one center now under contract beyond this year," I've said this a few times on the on the on this show. This is one of my like rules, right? Which is the most important thing is can you evaluate your own players? Mm. Because if you can't. There's no chance you're going to be able to evaluate anyone else's with the type of efficiency that gives you an edge in this league. If they've evaluated JT Miller as a center and in three weeks have decided, nah, meh, meh, maybe he's a winger, that's, I mean, you can't come back from that. Like, you can't. That's that's the sort of mistake that wrecks a team. <laughs> wrecks a team short and long term. Well, and you certainly can't let it... You can't look at it and say, oh, man, you know, we were we we're going to hold firm with Bo Horvat on this number. But, uh-oh, now we have this question, and we're going to bend, and we're going to we're gonna break. Right? I, I, I want to go on record, by the way, and say I think JT Miller can play center. <laughs> JT Miller can play center. We saw it last year. I just don't think he's as good defensively 
on at, at center as he is on the wing. I think on the wing he can help you transition. I think he's a better F1 than he is F3. I think he's, you know, th- there's a brand of winger that I really like that's like rangy, um, physical, can win battles on the wall. And JT Miller is like a pretty high-end version of that because of his playmaking ability from that spot, his ability to support the cycle, his ability to support the, the breakout uh, and, and lead the regroup. Uh, there's Canucks players who credit him with changing how they played to prioritize holding the puck when he first came to Vancouver, right? That the you can think about it when on on those breakouts when he's on the wall and he'll swing back and they maintain possession as opposed to going for the dump in. Like there's Canucks players who say Miller's demand that they that they play like that changed the way that the club played with uh, with certainly the lotto line on the ice mm. after his acquisition in 2019. So you know. Miller can play center. I just think he's better on the wing. And ideally, he's a center that you use matchup dependent or to raise your team's floor when injuries hit, things like that. For me, that's anyway who he is. His team, however, signed him because they were worried about not having a locked-in one-two punch down the middle of the ice. And if they've already gotten to the point where he's a two-position player as opposed to a, a fixture at center for this team, that to me is deeply concerning. Deeply, deeply concerning. Of all the things uh, LeBron mined from his interview with Rutherford, that to me is sort of, you know, in addition to, um, you know, dancing around the word rebuild. Yeah. That was like the most notable and probably the one that on this Hallow's Eve sent the <laughs> sent the deepest chill down my spine. <laughs> way to tie it in. Way, <laughs> way to get the timely Nailed it. reference in. But of course, it's. I mean, look, it's. It's back to the conversation we've been having for a long time about this team now, which is the decision, the twin decisions on Horvat and Miller and how they interact and what, as you said, how your evaluation on JT Miller uh, might change what you feel pressured or feel like you have to do when it comes to Bo Horvat. And of course, the other thing is, you know, if Horvat keeps scoring like this, price price isn't going down. The price is not going down if Bo Horvat is playing. Uh, the way he is. I mean, oh, what can... if what if Lark and like? There's also factors outside of Bo Horvat's control that will influence his, his market value. If Larkin puts pen to paper at some point before Horvat hits free agency, then it's Horvat alone, a completely unparalleled good on the free agent market. That's going to change the dynamic too and influence the dynamic too. So going to be fascinating to see how this plays out we will be back tomorrow the canucks are as we speak getting ready to hold a major press conference here at rogers arena stay tuned to 650 for more coverage of that the pdo cast with dimitri filipovich is up next it's the home of the canucks sportsnet 650